Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Welcome to Mud 79. I'm Fearless Fred Kennedy, the creator of this totally original and in no way authorized Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you're listening to this, there's a good chance that you love Star Wars. Well, I love it too. And I've always wanted to tell my own story in a galaxy far, far away. A story that's less about Skywalkers and more about those who were on the front lines. A boots on the ground story about how those living in the galaxy survive the horrors of war. That's what Mud 79 is all about. If you are new to the show, welcome. But please be aware this is a series. So if you don't want to be totally lost, start from the beginning with episode one. You don't want to be a stormtrooper. This is episode 10, The Ravine. The scouts of Platoon 79 were sent on a covert mission to bring down an enemy firepoint. They play a key role in a massive Imperial assault, and if they fail to reach their target on time, thousands of their comrades could be killed. Things grow dire as Mondahai is injured while crossing a river, and Kwai is shot during a firefight with enemy hostiles. Will they reach the enemy firepoint in time? And what other horrors await them within the jungles of Sestin 4? Let's find out. You remember the layout of that place? She pulled a tarp over it, lit up a hollow the Rylian foothills. This was where the main force would advance from, flying north through ravines, cover, then hitting the target. It zoomed in again. The battery was in full display. It sat on the top of a hill that sloped down southward from a cliff face that extended another six meters or so. There were three fully armed heavy quad cannons. They were swivel mounted and operated remotely. There was a bunker, or entrance, that led directly into the side of the cliff. No telling what was in there. Low walls, defensive positions built in front of trenches that offered ample fields of fire. The battery overlooked a wide valley of chopped jungle in every direction but north. The Toblin range began with its first low peaks a few hundred clicks or so further east. Look at this position. It's going to be hard getting close enough for a clear shot, and I don't trust those mortars outside of a thousand meters. At least not with us using them. Maybe if we had someone like Tolan. I pointed to a cluster of brush pocketed near a stream that flowed west, cutting the closest valley in half. Here, I said. Set up the mortars here. Get them in at night when it's dark, and position snipers here. I pointed to a berm slightly to the west of the battery. This spot only gives you a view of three quarters of the target, but it's secure and makes for a good hide. And with that angle, the quad cannons won't be able to target you. Then get a pair of shooters here. 
I pointed to a slight rise another hill to the south and east of the target. Lots of vegetation, and this culvert will give them a good escape line if things get hairy. Secondary position here. The culvert flattened halfway down the slope. It cut off some angles, but it was a dead flat shot to the battery. What about the last pair? We can't leave the mortars alone like that. They'd get shoot up. Throw another pair of shooters here. She picked a spot that was out in the open. Tall grasses, shrubs, and fallen trees. That ground sat low enough it could be swampland. If they stay low and hold their shots, they could even advance far enough to breach. Lay down heavy fire with the C7s and get the drop. I shook my head a bit. It's as good of a plan as we'll get, Kwai. There's over a thousand people coming down that ravine. We don't silence those guns, they're dead. And so are we. She moved off, relieving Troka, who was on watch. I tried to keep my eyes on her for a few minutes, look around, but everyone was out. I shifted my weight and winced. Then I slept. The sun came too soon. I was beat choked down my morning ration while Staven and I explained the plan to the others. In order for the timing to be right, we would need to adjust our route and make quick time from today on. Low, fast, and quiet. No one liked what we had in mind, but I don't think there was any way of liking an attack like this. Too many variables, opportunities for things to go sideways, but no one had a better plan. This was it. We moved out that morning slow. I tried carrying a pack, but I opened up my shoulder again. My gear had to be spread out, everyone carrying an extra 20 pounds because of the two walking wounded. My webbing was all right. I could at least haul my own ammo. When I laid down that night, I was sweating like crazy. Felt cold despite the exertion. Popped more pills, stripped down and washed the reddened mass of tissue as best I could, then hosed on the Bacta. A good dose of foam, then I passed out. Dreams of home and brightly lit ships soaring over my village, the people cheering in slow motion. Then I was up and moving. Nothing happened those days en route. We saw more Wendehu as our path took us closer to the mountains. They were massive and silent, barely making a whisper. You knew they were above you when everything in the jungle got quiet. Birds and small primates would climb down the trees and you'd look up through the canopy breaks and there'd be a giant four-winged reptile gliding past. They knew we were there. They had to. In our classroom work when we first landed, we were told the locals suspected Wendehu were a borderline intelligent species, able to be reasoned with, using simple tools. But that stuff was folktales. It was just nonsense. They were just a very good predator. That's it. That march was brutal. It was a pace. And if it had been even a day or two longer, I don't know how I would have fared. The last day of the march, I wasn't keeping anything down but water. 
I was strung out to the point I was dry-mouthing instant coffee and popping a double dose of uppers and pain meds. I was hitting the back-to-respirator three or four times a day, too. Mondahai was just as bad as me. Both our wounds were clearly infected, and wearing the IRDs all day and having them rub into open wounds was not helping. I'd bled through beneath my webbing. My back was just a wash of burgundy. I do remember one thing. My feet didn't hurt. If there was ever anything I would credit the Empire for, it's the boots. They fit well, adjusted, gripped in water. When it was 40 below, your feet were still warm, and they didn't wear out. They were the best piece of gear I ever received, and I was never more grateful for good quality boots than I was on this op. The sun was just setting when we came to the crest of the ridgeline. Below us was the valley the Lardies would be moving up. And off to our east, just out of view in the mist, was Firepoint Gamma. We made it with hours to spare. We hustled up below a low cluster of trees. Staven dropped her projector. The map glowed blue in front of us. We all know our positions, we all know our role, and we all know what's at stake. At 0430, we open fire. Arkham and Vansel were on the mortars. They were the strongest ones there, so they could handle the weight. You two need to be patient. Wait for us to open with the sniper rifles. Then range the mortars on those quad cannons and bring them down. Use the high explosive rounds, I said. Front load. They nodded, and we began trading gear. Then the final loadout. Staven was going into the valley with Till. They were going to be carrying C7s and hope to get in close enough to assault if needed. It's going to be hot down there. You take this, old man. She handed me the transmitter. Me and Mondahai were going to be taking the westernmost position. It offered limited visibility, but it was the shortest hike, and since we were walking wounded, it was the best option for us. It was also the ideal distance. 700 meters was what our rifles were scoped for standard. I would normally shoot longer than that when I was at the range or in simulators. I was walking up that hill confident. How you feeling? Like shit, I said. Yeah, same. We got enough pills, though. Even if we get shot, we'll be okay. Won't even feel it. We came into position after an hour of walking. The canopy cover went further than expected. We needed to shift in closer to the valley proper. Moved slow, really slow. Being hunched over hurt. There was a nice breeze, though. So, little mercies. Our new hide was much better situated to suppress the enemy, but we were a lot more exposed than I liked. We crawled through some shrubs and dug down a bit for more cover. I was under my tarp and a cami net six meters from Mondahai. We looked through our scopes and sighted the enemy position. There was an additional quad cannon, four of them. They must have known something was coming. Saw a few figures moving around. Looked human for the most part. Some had some armor on. Nothing fancy, but helmeted. There were some Twi'leks, too. They were sitting around a fire. Some tents we hadn't seen before on our scopes were 
set up behind the trench line. Their door to the bunker was open. I signaled to Mondi I was going to peer down into the valley to see if I could get a look at the rest of our team. Ideally, I wouldn't. I knew they were supposed to be there, and if I couldn't find them, odds were those defenders wouldn't either. I looked back at the battery. There was a small comms array at the top of the cliff edge, cabling running down to the roof of the bunker. I studied the array of quad cannons, well-armored turrets, evenly spaced on the south flank. Looked like the controls were inside the bunker. I lit up my scope's laser sight, just trying to get the range, but it was bouncing all over the place. The cloak on that position wasn't a normal cloak per se, not the type one would find on a stealth ship. It was more like a jammer, just scrambled scopes, prevented you from getting a lock, etc. They were putting that Kenyan to good use. We'd been trained how to scope in a target manually, and I was signaling with Mondi to see what she had gauged. 730 meters. The hours went by slow. I studied the target, followed the defenders, then peered across the valley. Saw the hill off to the south and east. They had quite a spot over there. Potentially, they could get some shots off that would make it into the bunker. Troka and Marquendis were the ones over there. I thought of myself sliding a nice grouping in the door. Catch a few of those assholes on their way out. You know, if there were more of them in there. I counted 14 enemy soldiers. There could have been more, but I assumed there were some quarters of some sort inside. A group of eight had been in there for a while. Then the other six had been clustered around the fire or would occasionally take a stroll along the trench line, peering over the side. This was when I'd really study them, where they were looking, what they were looking for. If they hung too long in a spot, that's when I would sweat. But every time, they moved on. These guys were operating on a schedule. Mark patrols on the line, sweeps outside the trenches, breaking out monoculars, sweeping their zone. The sky to the west was starting to go yellow, and the nebula was dimming, the purple fading as the sun lit the sky. I looked at my bracelet. We had 20 minutes. Checked my ranges again, kept an eye on the zone Mondi and I were in charge of, turned down the hue of my rifle. The more translucent, the better. Not only would it make the bolt more difficult to see, but it'd help eliminate flash from the barrel. When we first got here, I looked around for possible escape routes. My plan was to open fire, then advance and set up again. Open fire, then advance and set up again. Even once the batteries were inoperable, we'd still need to eliminate the defenders, so keeping the pressure on was going to be important. We'd been told that once the assault was secure, they'd send lardies back for us. So we needed to operate under the idea that no matter what happened, we were on our own. Two minutes out and I looked into the valley. Time slowed down even more. I took deep, long breaths, then peered back into my scope. Two of the defenders were in the trenches at the front. One was in my sector. I ranged my shot, aiming for his chest. 
He had light armor on, but the penetrative power on the E-11S was more than enough to penetrate or shatter his ribcage on impact. I just needed to put him down. 30 seconds. Both eyes were open. One on the target, one on my bracelet. The seconds ticked by. The patrol was moving on. Two more headed outside the trenches, though. Leave them for the second burst. It'd be easier to pick them off in the open. Take the guys in the trench line first. My man was moving along, turning himself out of my sight. 0430. The bolt zipped out of my rifle barrel. It flew across the valley and ripped into its target less than a second after I fired. He flew forward, landing on his stomach out of my line of sight. I made for one of the defenders on the outside. They'd been hit, still moving. I shot them again, then moved back to my first target. He was dragging himself into the bunker. I fired. The shot pounded into his shoulder and he rolled on impact. The turrets came to life. They were scanning for something to lock onto. Unless they had incredible sensors, which was unlikely given the array on the top of the cliff, they wouldn't be able to sight us based on heat. Just to be sure, I fired a burst into the antennae in the small transmission dish. The turrets opened up with a barrage at the second sniper hide on the east side of the valley. Then a second followed. The other two opened fire at 200 meters east of our position. Mondahai was already packed up and moving. She was riding some pills because her movements were way faster than they should have been. She was just lurching her way forward under the undergrowth when the mortars kicked in. They were sighted in and raining down plasma. Six were in the air, two launchers working in synchronization. Textbook timing. Lines of heavy turret fire were shredding the green carpet on the valley floor. It must have been muddy, pockmarked with bogs, because dirt-filled sludge was splashing into the air, mixing in with the shards of plant matter. I moved, left my tarp and cami netting. If it wasn't on my webbing, it was left behind. The high explosive from the mortars were doing their job. Huge clouds of debris were thrown up into the air. Any shooters that weren't in that bunker were dead or dying. Three of the quad cannons were sparking piles of twisted metal. One tried to fire, but it exploded. The fourth, the only one still working, was at half capacity. Its turrets mobile and two of the cannons still firing. It had the range on the mortars and was laying down a constant stream of fire on them. I was setting up further in and looked down to see someone running over to the spot where the mortars were. The last cannon turned on them, tracking along, a labored grind as each working pulse cannon jerked back, its heavy beams of plasma turning the soil to liquid on impact. Whoever was running dove. I couldn't tell whether they'd been hit or were hiding, but I needed to get the attention of that last cannon, draw their fire on me. The lardies would be coming soon. I began firing rounds at the turret proper. If I managed to hit something in there, maybe it'd jam, maybe it'd explode. I propped down and peered into the scope. The armor was dented up, but there were no openings. Mondi was firing, her shots making contact. The turret turned, shooting wild in our direction. I let loose a burst. Was about to fire again when, off in the distance, east and a touch south, maybe 50 clicks or so, it was difficult to gauge due to the scale, but 
A stream of heavy orbital fire tore down from the sky. Even at this distance, it was unbelievable, godlike. I knew if the Star Destroyer was firing, the clock was ticking. I reached into my chest pocket and took out the transmitter. One tap. We needed to bring this battery down. I got behind my sights again. Heard the mortar fired from down in the valley, just one shot. It hit high going over the cliff. I watched it soar over and explode. The crossfire was dumping turbo lasers onto that shield. Ten solid seconds of fire. Couldn't help but stare. Then the sound of the quad cannon shifting targets got my attention. The closeness of its impacts were drifting away. I aimed at it again and kept firing. Whoever was on that mortar needed to get their range and fast. Something was coming out of the bunker's entrance, so I raised my rifle. They had a rocket launcher, some big canister charge on the end, probably a sparrow miner. These things would go out a ways, blow out, then lay mines everywhere. It was a great way to throw up a sudden wall of defense. I adjusted my target, manually compensating for the change in distance rather than adjusting my scope. I eased back on the trigger, but it was too late. They fired half a second before me. The canister went out, then my shot smacked into their hip. Their right leg was barely hanging on, and they were flailing on the ground. I fired again, three more times. Saw some shots zipping into the bunker's entrance. Some clearing their way through the arched doorway, the others grazing the sides. The canister drifted into the air with a high arc. I couldn't track it, but it didn't look like it was about to explode. It was venting gas, though, this blue mist. I watched it peak in its arc, then begin falling back down to the surface again. I took a shot at it, then another, and another. No hits. If I hadn't been aiming at the canister, I would have missed the lardies turning into the southern edge of the valley. I swung my rifle around and began firing at the last quad cannon. It wasn't going to pose that much of a threat to the fleet as a whole, but it could still bring down a ship or two with some well-placed shots. I flipped to semi-auto, letting loose bursts of three shots at a time. I could hear Monty down the slope doing the same. Our small grade fire wasn't penetrating the armor. The turret was shooting wild into the pack of 20-plus lardies that hauled ass between the mountains. I heard the welcome thump of one of the mortars going off in the valley below. Pulled back from my scope, and it looked good. It looked great. They were less than five meters off the turret. I saw the cat fly into the air when the charges went off. Yes! Take that! Mondi was down the hill, and I looked in the direction the turret had been firing in. I was just in time to watch a lardy hit the ground and slide a hundred meters or so through the mud, then come to a rest at the base of the Firepoint's hill. The nose was buried a foot or so into the muddy soil. The valley grew quiet as the guns were silenced and the fleet moved on. I studied the lardy, asking Mondahai if she saw any movement. The pilots seemed all right. They were unstrapping and heading into the interior. You could see them through the domes. I had my scope cued onto them. That lardy and its radio were our ticket out of here. I moved over to Mondahai to make sure she was all right. The two of us were 
barely straight when we rolled in a few hours ago. The mix of pills and adrenaline had made me squirrely already, making hardly any sense of the situation. We had just hit the back to respirators again and began working our way down the hill towards the mortar position. I moved beneath the canopy when I saw shadows passing overhead. Then another, and another. We both dropped, looking up through the break in the leaves. When Dehu, loads of them, headed down into the valley. We kept moving down. They were coming from everywhere. What the fuck are those things doing? Where are they coming from? I grabbed her shoulder and pulled her down as we reached a spot with a break in the foliage. We were about 300 meters north of the mortar position and 600 west of the down lardy. There were too many flying lizards to count, some as big as a standard transport and some no bigger than a single pilot speeder. One swooped down past the lardy, scraping it with its talons. These things were hostile. Then I heard blaster fire. It was coming from our secondary sniper position. I looked over. When Dehu were swarming everywhere. I guess they were trying to make a meal out of Troca and Marquendas. They were jerking back midair, taking fire, but no less discouraged. Those guys were burning through ammunition. So I raised my rifle and shot at one that was soaring low over the cluster of obliterated trees we'd used as shelter for the mortar rounds. I hit its wing and the thing screeched and lifted up. Then shit just got crazier. All of them started dive bombing and landing and clawing and snapping. They were reaching their heads down to where our people were, breaking through the trees. At first there was return fire, but then it stopped. Silence. Whoever was in there was stuck, or worse. More came towards our position. Mondahai threw a detonator, and it was a good toss, too. Went off, and the few that were almost on us left back. One had stayed too close, and the outer third of its rear left wing was torn away. It flailed on the ground before trying to get airborne, sending arcs of blood out with each flap of its wings. Thing was massive. Wingspan of eight meters. Easy. I was not in my right mind at this point, but I had a recollection of Fepto giving us the lowdown a week earlier, reminding us that a C-7 would make short work of these things. Honestly, that was my only real thought, getting that gun and driving those things off. It wasn't a heroics thing, it was a survival thing. I think I looked back at Mondi and yelled something like, cover me, then ran. The Wendehu were thrashing into the cluster of foliage. A shot rang out from a slug thrower. It had a distinct clunk sound when it went off. It was coming from further away. It fired again, and I saw the flash. This must have been where Staven and Tilly had hunkered down in case they needed to charge the battery on foot. I screamed like a Tuscan raider on too many death sticks and kept shooting round after round. I tossed my empty clip away, which was against regulation, and reloaded, burning through even more ammunition. I managed to hit one of those flapping reptiles in the head, and it fell over and flopped around on the ground. 
I was cruising, running at a pace, hopping over pools and bogs. I'd slip in the mud, but keep firing, making my way through the mire on my knees. I was just about at the toppled cluster of trees when I heard that distinctive whir of a Z6. Heavy auto cannon fire went everywhere. Not the mechanical whirring, but the constant stream of heavy blaster fire. One of those shots tore through the trees and hit me, actually, right below the knee on my left leg. I flipped and landed hard on the same shoulder that had been ripped apart by a blaster a few days ago. But I was high on so many pain meds, I didn't even feel it. I got up, feeling invincible, unstoppable. When I began running, my legs snapped underneath me. I felt the bone grinding under my skin, and the sensation was horrible. Not painful, just sickening. I was a wreck. I laid on the ground and and popped more shots off, aiming at the scattering flying reptiles. The Z6 fire wasn't slowing, hammering into the Wendehu with dull fox, but they continued to screech as they gained altitude. That C7 fired again. It reminded me of why I'd come. I had this singular need to get to that mortar position and find it. I remembered the kickback from when I shot it in the river. I knew if I got to it, everything would be okay. I dragged myself the last few meters through the mud and muck. That mortar position was just a tangle of branches. I saw a body slumped to the side. It was Staven. Her legs were gone. Ripped off. Jagged wounds. She was laying there in a heap with her mouth open, the C7 still in her hands. There was a big chunk of wood, a massive sliver, driven into her torso. Went in at the neck, and I didn't see it come out. There was no cliché moment beneath the tree that morning. I registered it was her, registered she was no longer with us, then took the slug thrower from her hands, checked the barrel, detaching the ammo drum. It was half full, so I crawled back into the open. Every time the Z6 cannon died out, those big flapping assholes would start coming back. We must have killed at least 30 at this point. Then I started shooting the C7. I laughed when the first shot impacted. It ripped right into its target, and the thing landed on the turf and rolled. The difference between this and my blaster rifle was unreal. I pumped a few more shots into it until it stopped moving. I was emptying the barrel at anything that moved, and there was a lot still moving. Then a massive explosion lit up the dim sky above me. Heat. The blaze of a detonated RPS-6 round. One of the Wendehu exploded mid-air, sending out a spray of meat and green blood. I kept pulling the trigger until the drum was empty. The trigger was clicking and there were no rounds exiting the barrel, but I kept doing it. I felt like I was drunk, aiming and shooting air, moving in patterns because I thought that's what I needed to do. My mind was fuzzy, losing sight of everything. Vision was coming with my pulse. My thought process was still clear, though. I was trying to operate as if everything was fine, even though my body itself was physically shutting down. 
I hit the wall. The last thing I really have clear memories of is pulling a tourniquet off my webbing and tying off my leg. The back to respirator tumbled out and I grabbed that too. Crawled back to Staven while I was taking some hauls. The vapor cool coming into my lungs. I didn't look at Staven. Not at her face. I knew she was gone, but I just needed her to be there, to be with me. I couldn't let her go. I was verbally repeating that we'd done it, that we'd pulled it off, joking that we'd get medals, and I could have sworn I heard her reply. I responded to her, but it wasn't her, not anymore. It was actually a medic. She was with the lardy that had come down nearby. I was being medevaced back to Camp Vibus. It had been used as a staging area for the entire offensive and was designated as the fallback point. I glanced around the lardy when we were en route, but everything moved so fast. I learned I was close to overdosing on pain pills, and combined with the uppers and every other chemical running through my system, I had more medication in my blood than actual blood. They needed to drop me into a bacta-tank for three full days before I was cleaned out. Those things aren't enjoyable, especially when you're in such bad shape you can't even comprehend the concept of time. When they pulled me out, I was given a cot in the infirmary, where I spent the next two weeks. They saved my leg, but I'd have a lot of rehab. The injury to my shoulder had actually pushed a shard of bone into my lung. If not for the constant pulls on the Bacta respirator, I would have drowned in my own parasite-ridden blood. I was in a recovery room with Mondahai and Arkham. We were the only ones who lived. We were there for a few days before Tolan and Murray came by for a visit. They snuck in a bottle of Kang Tree and poured it into my juice. The operation, overall, had been a resounding success. The enemy port was taken with few casualties. Platoon 79 came through spotless. Minus the losses the scouts had taken, we were still at full strength. That's the term they use, full strength. It didn't feel that way. Not to me and not to Murray. Both of us had lost one of our closest friends. Staven had been there since the beginning. She was the one I relied on the most. Not just for those creepy eyes of hers, but for the way she always rode in like nothing could touch her. She had luck, left you feeling that she was cocky for a reason, and being with her made you equally untouchable. I would miss that. A lot. I was in the midst of hammering down my point when Tolan chimed in that she probably bought it on purpose so she wouldn't have to pay us back, which seemed like a very Staven thing to do, actually. Our scout group wasn't alone when it came to taking heat. Every one of them had taken serious casualties. The scouts from Platoon 124 had only one trooper make it back. But every team was successful in eliminating its targets. The actual assault force had been lucky. Well, not lucky, just blessed with a well-executed plan of attack. The Star Destroyer's barrage of fire had brought the shield down on time and a few shots from the turbo lasers actually hit the interior of the ravine, eliminating portions of the defense. 
Three lardies were hit on approach, but the rest reached their destination on schedule and unloaded in textbook fashion. There were only 300 people manning that enemy outpost, most of them just laborers. It was more of a factory than a military outpost. According to everyone I'd spoken to, they'd put up a sporadic defense, but at no point did they manage to slow down the advance. There was a lightly armed hauler in there, who was in the process of unloading a shipment of freshly mined Kenyan, and it caused more casualties than any of the actual defenders. Its gunners identified choke points and laid down retaliatory fire until they were silenced by a series of rockets from an RPS-6. The facility had massive stores of Kenyan, and it was also a manufacturing facility for the same type of cloaking devices that had been used on those anti-aircraft batteries. Simple but effective technology. The position was still being examined. Command was going over it with every manual sensor and inspection crew they had. For me, the time in the infirmary trickled by. I spent hours doing rehab on my leg, regaining flexibility and strength, and then soaks in the back to tanks. I remember being jealous of everyone who'd been cooped up in the infirmary, but it was actually worse than regular duty. Too much time to think. I would get frustrated and restless, so I began taking walks outside, which was good for my head. At this point, it was cold enough that you needed a jacket or a coat. It was nice watching everyone have to put in hours of labor while I was on mandated relaxation, though. There was a spot near the parade square where I'd watch everyone marching or doing drill. Plenty of shuttles flying in overhead, too. Every one of them had a haul of mineral. It was 10.43 a.m. on the second Sentax day of the month. I had a cup of bean coffee in my hand and was submitting a request form to get out of the infirmary and be given modified duties at the range until I was combat ready. Then I saw a cluster of shuttles flying in formation. Lardies, dark gray, combat ready. This wasn't too surprising. Over the past few weeks, our fleet of retrofit lardies were gradually being traded in for ships better suited to a hostile environment. Combat-grade lardies. The same ones the cloners used. But it was the ship in the rear that drew my eye. The Theta class was back. How will Kwai deal with the loss of one of his closest friends? What happens now that the Empire has gone on the offensive? Will things get better or worse? And why has the Inquisitor chosen this moment to return? That's next time on Episode 11, Snow. Thank you for joining me this week on Fearless Fred Presents Mud 79, a Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you follow the show so you'll never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps grow the show and will make my contemptible harpy of a producer very happy. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and a full listing of Mud79's cast. 
If you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at fearless underscore Fred or email me at mud79 at curiouscast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, the Harpy, our producer. Sound design is by moi, and final production is by Rob Johnson. And I'll see you next week for more Mud 79. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.